Good morning, Vero Christian Church. Our in-person 930 service, so good to have you. You're actually my favorite service. Don't tell the other services I said that. And don't ask them if I said that to them either. And uh, live streamers, glad to have you with us. Please click share and click like on there if you will. The techno people on our staff tell me that's an important thing to do. Previously on Obey Everything, last week, if you weren't with us, we were looking at this Ask, Seek, Knock scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. So I used a metaphor for life. It was a game that we played back on the, in our day on the playground. What was that game? Thank you. I feel affirmed today that people were listening, paying attention. And we said, uh, this, there's an application here on sh- ways to share the truth, how to be salt and light, kind of a kinder, gentler way to do that. Because the whole pericope, remember this section of Scripture, is about interpersonal relationships. So Jesus says, don't judge, number one. Don't throw your pearls before the swine. Don't share truth with people that aren't necessarily ready to do anything with it. And then he says, ask, seek, and not. So there's a place for correction. There's a place for rebuke. There's a place for debate. You may have seen a debate this past week on Tuesday night, right? There was a debate. A debate wasn't that uplifting, wasn't that enlightening. There's a place for that kind of thing. And maybe it's in politics. And truly in the Christianity sometimes too. But speaking of interpersonal relationships, sometimes it's better to get on the other side of that debate line, put your arm around someone's shoulder, and say, we are going to communally seek the truth. We're going to ask some questions, seek to be in someone's presence. If there's been estrangement in a personal relationship, knock on the door of someone's heart, ask for the invitation to be invited in. So that was kind of the application last week. Now today I want to make a different application of the same scripture. It's still within the context as we're going to see. Let me introduce a different metaphor. This is a a team sport of basketball. Back in the day, Michael Jordan scored 69 points in one game. And his teammate, Stacy King, said, I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points in one game. Jordan had 69, Stacy King had one, but it's good to have friends in high places on your team. Well, when we apply this passage to prayer, we have a friend in high places. We have God, and He's the one who does the heavy lifting, so we go to Him and we ask and we seek and we knock. In the verse that follows the ask, seek, knock passage, all right, verse 9, Jesus continues with this, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So last week we were talking about living in thoughtful interaction with other people, Today we want to talk about living in bold intercession for people. When we intercede, we're praying for other people. So living in bold intercession. And when Jesus says here, you know, what father, what parent, if their child asks them for bread, is going to give them a stone. They ask them for a fish, is going to give them a snake. Nobody. It's a rhetorical question. Now some of you may have a narrative going on in your head. You may, have, you may know of a parent who said, yeah, I know a parent that would do that and even worse. If you suffered abuse at the hands of a parent or maybe somebody watching, uh, I'm sorry, that's a tough thing to get over, but it's the exception that proves the rule. 
Even if that's been someone's experience, we push back against that because we know the way God designed families is for there to be love and parents who love to give good gifts to their children. Or maybe I should say we like to give good gifts to our children. We love to give good gifts to our grandchildren. But that's, that's what the average parent is like. So who's going to give them a stone? When I was reading that, I couldn't help but thinking about the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Remember the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown? The kids are going around, they're trick-or-treating. And uh, they get together after each house and say, what did you get in your sack? What did you get in your sack? Remember what Charlie Brown got after every house in his sack? A rock. I got a rock. You know, who's going to do that? Uh, God would never do that. God loves to give good gifts. It made me think, what would Jesus give little children uh, on Halloween when they come to the door trick-or-treating? And some people might say, that's blasphemous. Jesus would never give anybody anything. He'd hand out toothbrushes and Bible tracts. Or he'd turn out the lights on the porch and sit in a darkened house and just not participate. But I think that Jesus would give the good stuff. He'd give the good candy. The king of all candy, Snicker bars, full size. That's what I think Jesus would do. But that, we can talk about that over lunch. But the point here is, it's kind of a rhetorical question, and he's making the point that God loves to give good gifts to us in answer to prayer. So we know what he's not saying. He's not saying we automatically get everything we pray for or ask for in prayer. And I'm not going to belabor this because you only have to live about 20 minutes as a Christian to know that we don't always get everything we ask for. But one thing I will belabor a little bit is maybe that's a good thing. What if we'd had the experience where everything we asked for, God gave it to us and He's kind of obligated? Some people might stop praying because sometimes we don't always know what the best thing is for our own lives. And so we trust that the God who is omnipotent, has the power to answer our prayers, also has the omniscience, the wisdom to know when to say yes, when to say no, when to say wait, or to answer in a different way. We just trust that. Remember the story of Hezekiah in the Old Testament. Hezekiah was a king of Judah. He's one of the good kings, and he got sick. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah and said, well, this illness is terminal. You need to get your affairs in order, get the will notarized. And Hezekiah didn't like that, and he prayed for healing. So God sends Isaiah back and said, all right, God heard your prayer. He's going to extend your life by 15 years. Well, that's a good answer. I mean, 54 is relatively young to die in our culture, but it's better than 39. But the Bible says that Hezekiah did not receive that news appropriately with humility. He, his heart grew proud. His heart grew proud. Babylonians wanted to come and look at Hezekiah's kingdom and examine his treasuries. And Hezekiah said, come on in. Let me show you all my gold, all my silver. Let me show you our troops, our designs, our plans, our temple, our kingdom. He showed them everything. Didn't hold back anything. God sends the prophet back, said Hezekiah. That was not a smart thing to do. They're going to come back and they're going to attack you. They're going to take everything that you showed them away. It's not going to happen in your lifetime, but it's going to happen. And Hezekiah's proud response was, well, at least I won't live to see it. In the third year of that 15-year extension, Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh. Manasseh went on to become the king after Hezekiah had died. The worst king in the history of Judah was Manasseh. And that's saying a lot. He led those people purposefully into idolatry, immorality, and corruption until he was carried off into captivity. You know, one could easily make the case that Hezekiah would have been better off and the kingdom of Judah would have been better off if he had died at 39 instead of, what, 54. Now, what are you saying, Steve? 
Are you saying that we should not pray to be healed, that we should not pray to live longer? No, I'm absolutely not praying that. I can tell you right now, if I get sick and it's serious, I'm going to pray to live and I'm going to ask you to pray for me. And likewise, if you get sick, I'm going to be praying for you to live. That's not the application, is it? The application is this. Sometimes when we don't get the answer we, we think we want, or in the timing that we think we want it, in our minds we create alternative realities where we think, you know, if God had said yes instead of no, if God had said no instead of yes, if God had prevented this from happening in the first place, my life would have gone off in this direction and it would have been so much better. But the fact of the matter is we simply cannot know that. That's above our pay grade. Only God is omniscient. He knows all the alternative realities. He knows all of the contingencies. He's weaving all of our lives together in His providence for what is good for us, for what is good for you, for what is good for Him, for what is good for the kingdom. Only He's able to do that. He's that kind of God. And Jesus is teaching us here about prayer, not so much about techniques in prayer, but about the kind of God that we pray to. That He's this kind of God, just like your parents. You know, in a functional family, the parents love their kids. Their posture is to do good for their children and give them good gifts, give them what they ask for and what's good for them. He's saying that's the posture of our God. So we ask, seek, and knock, boldly interceding for other people. Someone has said, prayer is talking with God about what we are doing together. We're doing it together. James writes, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So this is liberating in a way because it means since we have teammates in high places and God is working on things and it's not just us and our own strength that we don't have to be such control freaks. We want to fix, we want to fix people and we want to fix things. We want to fix circumstances. We want to manage circumstances. And what, you know what they teach spouses of addicts and Al-Anon? They teach them you cannot fix another person. You can't. You cannot manage other people. We can't even fix ourselves, our own hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we keep going to God for, and He keeps working on us, and we say, thank you for being patient with me. So sometimes with our kids, when our kids go off, take a walk on the wild side, I want, we want to fix those kids, or we want to fix the grandkids, or a spouse, or a parent, or a boss, any kind of circumstances. We're not the fixers. Now, God may use us, surely. God may sometimes use us as an influencer, as he sees fit, or maybe not. But it still, it is God who is in control. But this assumes that we are asking, seeking, and knocking in prayer with God. That's the assumption. Let me ask, let's do a thought experiment here for a minute. If all of your prayers over the past week had been answered in the affirmative, yes, what would be different? What would change? What relationship would be healed? What person might be healed? Who might be saved? What mission might be blessed? If it all hinged on your prayers, I got three fingers pointing back at me, on my prayers. All our prayers over the past week were answered. What and who would change? <clears throat> and this is just a question about, you know, are we praying? 
Are we praying, asking, seeking, knocking about anything significant or anyone? All last week, our mission of the month was Rafa House, which rescues children out of sexual slavery. We put the little prayer calendars out here on the seats so people can pray over those prayer requests. In that, they had a goal to increase their children's sponsorship in the kids' club. That's where you pay $40 a month for a child, and you feed, clothe, house, and educate that child so that their parents don't have to sell them into sexual slavery or feel that they have to. So they had a goal on that prayer calendar that we had out all last month. It was repeated three times on the prayer calendar that they would increase their child sponsorships by X. Now, don't answer this out loud, but how many were they trying to increase their sponsorships by? Well, the answer is 30. And I only know that because I went back and looked in preparation for this message, not because I was necessarily praying about it every day. But if them reaching that goal had been contingent on you praying about that, would they have reached that goal? I'm just using that as one example, one example. We want to make sure we're praying, we're asking, we're seeking, and we're knocking. A few weeks ago, after I had preached a message on the Lord's Prayer and kind of how I build that out, there was a young man who came to me after the service. He said, Steve, I'd like to get with you next week sometime. And uh, I said, great, let's get together. What do you want to talk about? He said, I want to pick your brain about prayer. My prayer life's getting a little bit redundant, and I want to, I want to pick your brain about prayer. Inside, I said, glory, hallelujah. I've been doing this preaching ministry for over 40 years, and that's the first time anyone has ever come to me and said, hey, you know, I need some help with my prayer life, or I'd like to talk about prayer. I'd like to get better at prayer. First time. It's not to say that that's not happening. And it may, that may have more to do with me than anything else. But we got together. I said, brother, tell me about your prayer life. He said, well, I pray about an hour a day, but it's starting to get redundant. I said, an hour a day? I need to be picking your brain on prayer, not you picking my brain. But I loved his attitude. I loved his attitude. I want to get better. How can we get better? How can I introduce some varieties? It's not the same old thing. Well, you know, prayer calendars are a way to do that. Our missions that we support, they all have vital prayer needs that they would love to put before us. CareNet, Bonnie back here is the CEO or president, the leader, I don't know what your title is, of CareNet Pregnancy Center. If you get on her email list, she sends out prayer requests every week to pray for. You know what church communities did in the past? They had fixed times of prayer throughout their day, sometimes morning, noon, night, other times where you know, we could set an alarm on our watch or on our phone so it goes off periodic, periodically throughout the day just as a reminder to turn our thoughts, our minds toward God and pray. Maybe have one of these prayer lists before us, even the prayers that come in from our church members on those online cards, and we disseminate those out every week. We can pray for those. Pray. All of our missions would love to have us interceding, boldly interceding with God, asking and seeking and knocking on their behalf. So those prayers, so we're going to pray. Now the prayer, as we said, may or may not be answered right away or in the way we, we want it to, but it will be answered. Let me give you Nehemiah here for just a second. Now Nehemiah was in the Old Testament. He lived in Persia. He was an Israelite exile. He didn't get to live in Israel, didn't get to live in Jerusalem. He'd been, you know, he's one of these captives in Persia. He's the cupbearer to the king. He tasted the wine before the king did, so, the king, so Nehemiah would die and not the king. It's a very high position. But he heard about his, you know, back home in Jerusalem, how the temple had been destroyed and the walls of Jerusalem had been knocked down. He knew he had the skill set as a leader to go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. That was his desire. And so he began to pray about it. 
And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we read, In the month of Kislev, I mourned, fasted, and prayed. Please grant me success by making the king favorable to me. He's got to ask the king, and he wants the king to give him permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. That's chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he writes, In the month of Nisan, the king agreed to my request. That sounds almost like a microwave prayer right there. Ask in chapter 1, answer in chapter 2. Ask in Kislev, answer in Nisan. Nisan's not just a car, it's a month on the Jewish calendar. What's the time difference between the month of Kislev and the month of Nisan? That's four months. So he starts asking, and then four months later, he gets an answer. Our answer may come in four hours, four days, four months, four years, 40 years. It might come in 400 years. Israelites were in slavery crying out to God for 400 years, and then God sends Moses. Prayer, our prayer, our ask, seek not to God is like a check sent up to the bank of God. We do not know when the check will be cashed. It might be cashed in our lifetime and we get to see it. It might not be cashed. It may be cashed after we die and we get to see the answer from heaven. But those checks are always cashed. What's the oldest city of the United States? We should know this. Yeah, St. Augustine. Oldest city in the United States. Who is it named after? St. Augustine. It's like, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Grant. Uh, Santa Monica, California. Who's that named after? St. Monica. Who was, Monica was the mother of St. Augustine. Now, Monica, now, Augustine lived, the reason he's important, he lived back in the 4th century A.D., which is in the 300s. Aside from Jesus and Paul, many historians believe that, or let's call him Augustine, I think that's the appropriate pronunciation, Augustine probably influenced Western civilization more than any other person than Jesus, other than Jesus or Paul. A tremendous influence. He was a bishop, Christian, but he wasn't always a saint. I mean, when he grew up, he took a walk. He talked about taking a walk on the wild side. He lived in debauchery, immorality, and corruption. His mother sat him. Now, his mother had, Monica had three children. She poured the scriptures into all three of them. Two of them went on the straight and narrow, not Augustine. She sat him down at 16 years old. You got to stop living this immoral life. He laughed at her. He went on with it for years. Had a mistress, had a child, out of wedlock. He refused to marry the mother because he thought it might cramp his style, which it would have. He decided he wanted to move from his little hometown to Rome, which is like moving from Vero Beach to Las Vegas. Sin City. Mom said, I'm coming with you. Because she's praying for him the whole time. She's, she's like a hound from heaven. She's going to hound him to the gates of hell. I'm coming with you. He said, okay. They go to the porch. He says, you don't want to stay out here in the sun. Stay here in this nice, cool building. I'll come get, get you when the ship comes in. Ship came in. Augustine got on, ditched his mother, and went to Rome, where he continued to live a hedonistic lifestyle. Well, she continued to pray for him. She got another boat. She went to Rome. Now, he's in a cult at this time, kind of like a New Age cult, Augustine is. But he'd heard of the most famous preacher in the world of his day, which was Bishop Ambrose. Great for his rhetorical ability. And Augustine wanted to hear him. So he started going to hear Ambrose preach. Well, Monica started going to hear Ambrose too. She pulled Ambrose aside and said, look, my son is listening to you. I'm praying for him. I want you to pray for him with me. So they did. Ambrose and Monica are now praying for Augustine. His heart begins to be pricked. This is years and years into his life. His heart begins to be pricked. He has no joy. He has no happiness. He has no hope. He's miserable. You know that kind of 
lifestyle always leads to that. He's walking in the garden one day. He hears a child on the other side of the hedge say, read, read, read. And he takes it as a sign. He goes back into his room, plops his Bible, just opens it up. You know how people do? Opens it up. First verse he looks at, Romans 13, 13, it reads like this. I don't think I've got this on a slide, but it reads, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. That was it. It was done. He didn't have to read any further. Came to faith and was baptized, both he and his son, on Easter Sunday, following Easter Sunday, baptized into Christ. First person he told, who do you think that was? It wasn't his dad. It was his mom, Monica. By the way, Monica was married off as a, a young girl to an older man. He had a violent temper. was not a Christian. She prayed for him for 30 years. And he converted one year before he died. But anyhow, a great prayer warrior was Monica. And uh, her son converted, and a year later, she died. Now, all I'm saying is this. By the way, that story is written up, along with some others, uh, in Ruth Graham's book, Prodigals and Those Who Love Them. That's the name of the book, Prodigals and Those Who Love Them. Because her son, Franklin, was a prodigal as well, Franklin Graham. It's a good book, if anybody has a prodigal in their family. But I'm talking about the prayer checks. Now, Monica got to see her prayer check cashed in her lifetime. Not everybody does. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But regardless, in faith, we send those prayer checks up. And they're going to be cashed by God in His good time. In His good time. Jesus ends this pericope with the golden rule. Uh, so, therefore, do to others as you would have others do to you. The word He uses there for others, there's two words that He could have used. The first one is Adelphos, like Philadelphia. Brotherly love means people like us, people in our family, people in our tribe, people in our church, people that are easy to love. He didn't use that word. He used anthropoi, from which we get anthropology, which means all people. All, treat all people, everyone. We've never interacted with anyone who did not need us to love them the way we want to be loved, treat them the way we want to be treated, who did not need us to boldly intercede on their behalf. Ask, seek, not. Two or three ways to interact with people. We can red rover them. We can bowl them over. We can sit on our hands and just be silent and zip up our mouths. Or we can ask, seek, knock, and are interacting with them. And we can ask, seek, knock with God on their behalf. Let's do that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask, seek, knock to you. Maybe the person that, that we've interceded with more than anyone is ourselves. And we know you still have to, you're still doing that work within us to give us the desire and the power to do what is pleasing to you. We also turn our eyes outward, Lord. And sometimes it's our children. Sometimes it's our grandchildren. Sometimes it's our parents, our spouses. Sometimes it's somebody in the neighborhood, maybe a boss, an employee, or an enemy. And we ask and seek and knock in bold intercession, knowing that you're going to cash that check someday, some way. In Jesus' name, amen.